everyone and welcome to the podcast. Tonight we're going to be talking about magical realism and um, fandom fusions and how to do it without writing a crack fest. Um, <clears throat> and uh, while crack fic has its place, um, obviously in fandom, it and honestly, even like in like contemporary like original fiction, there there is a place for crack. Uh, but for the most part, I think that magical realism leans away from crack. Because when you're writing magical realism, you are weaving magical elements into reality. In such a way that they've always been there, that they don't stick out, everybody's aware of them. Whether they get discussed or not, these elements are there. You know, they're just accepted. Um, and to me, that doesn't lean itself towards crack. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but, no, I agree with but, you. but there was a question that sparked this um, podcast. Jilly, do you have it? I do have it. Okay. It is. Um, the question was, um, is it harder to pull off, is it harder to pull off magical realism and science heavy fandoms? Um, CSI was specifically mentioned. I'm leaving out some of the context of that. What about shows like The Sentinel? Or Sentinels are known AU. Do the two issues reinforce each other's believability? Actually, I would call the Sentinel, uh, Sentinels are known AU to be magical realism after a fashion. Um, or, or do they make our suspension of disbelief take an impromptu mass vacation? What about comedy versus drama? Would you tr would trying to insert magical realism into cabin pressure or sports night automatically lead to crack fic? Um, so there's a lot of different pieces to that question. Um, well, what I would say is that like the sentinel even the sentinel show itself had a hint of magical realism i mean a deep hint actually because magical realism um the genre was um comes from south america and yeah. it's about um uh obviously magic um magical elements um political commentary is is mixed into there um in the traditional magical realism um and we have someone with advanced senses um, who sees ghosts um, on more than one occasion and also um, has a connection on a spiritual plane. Um, there is a shaman in it with, and the shaman appears to have some extra ability going on. It, so that is that speaks to magical realism, but the the difference is is that this is not something that is widely worldly known. Um, now, if you make it a sentinels and guides are known to you, which is one of the most common tropes in sentinel fusion, I think you do you meet get, the bar. You meet the bar of magical realism. But um, I do think when it comes to magical realism these days, you can ignore a lot of the. Um, the political and historical side of it because it ceases to become i mean if you're trying to figure out how to do magical realism um in 911 does the south america connection and the political stuff matter no not really but um, you can intersperse like social politics into it if you want to like give it that flavor like in requiem um a lot of there there's a lot of family politics going on in uh in, in Requiem, um, good relationships and bad relationships and how those relationships are, um, kind of, uh, there's, the, the, there's a big arc about Eddie and his parents coming up in, in Requiem, um, where Eddie has to exert 
uh, his legal authority over his own child. And it's important to figure out what those themes are before you get started is, is what I would say. Whether you go the full political route, whether you look where you focus on social issues, um, whether you focus on inter, you know, interpersonal issues, these external conflicts um, are things you would have to pick out anyway when you're structuring a series or a story or a novel or if you don't structure. I think even if you pant, these external things are, are going to push in on you regardless of whether you planned it or not. Because that's just the human experience. This is my personal opinion. Okay, so somebody asked if it's magical or is it real? The point of magical realism is that you're acting as if it's real. If you're not going to start with that piece of your disbelief suspended, there's literally no point in plotting a story around magical realism. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot of different approaches you can take to magical realism. Um, we've talked about soulmates as a form of magical realism. That can be a very um, low effort, um, a, a sort of a low uh, low risk entry entree into kind of doing magical realism is to write a soulmate story. And there are there are different tropes for soulmates that involve more or less magic. Some involve almost no magic, actually. <coughs> So, um, and I think that you, the kind of magic you infuse into the world probably depends upon whether you're doing a drama series or, um, I think if you're writing comedy, um, I'm trying to think if I ever, have I ever written in a comedy fan? I don't think I have. I don't even think I read in any comedic fandoms. So I don't, I don't know what involved in that. I don't know what the, what the general take on fandom is with comedic fandoms. Um, I don't know if people, I certainly have written in red and cracky fandoms, fandoms that were kind of a little over the top, like Buffy. Um, but that's not the same thing as comedy, like the Big Bang Theory or Sports Night or whatever. And I don't really know what the formula is about how you write in those kinds of fandoms. Um, but I wouldn't imagine that inserting magical realism would make them any more cracky than they are already, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> Um, if you happen to write, I mean, I know some people still write friends. Uh, if you write friends fanfic, I, I don't know that inserting magical realism, um, if you like wish babies or something, it's going to make it any crackier, any more or less cracky than, than, than the fandom or the show was. So, um, but some shows are crackier than others. Like the office was extremely cracky. Could you, so I don't, I don't think magical realism is going to, magical realism actually has the potential to dial up the crack level for sure in a, in a cracky show. Um, a whole, the, the mini trope where people break out into song randomly, that's usually like when I saw that done on an episode of, I want to say it was Code Black, it was because the POV character had that uh, condition where they heard everything in song. Um, and so the. I would find that very annoying. <laughs> So the whole episode wasn't done in song, but whenever the person who was had this condition was where she heard everything in song, whenever it was her point of view, everybody was singing and dancing. Um, but then you'd go back to the normal points of view when she wasn't on screen and the characters would be behaving normally. So, um, but no, I would not call that magical realism unless the entire world people were, unless you rewrote the show so people were constantly singing. But a single episode... Well, in Buffy, I, it, I mean, aren't the vampires and shit basically hidden? Isn't it like a big secret? Sort of. 
Yeah. Then that really doesn't qualify as like magical realism because magical realism is kind of baked in. It's not a secret. It's accepted, acknowledged, moved on from. It's a part of everyday life. It's like the sun rises, your neighbor can levitate. I mean, it's literally the same. Um, some people have, Cannon didn't explore much about why the people who live in Sunnydale are so accepting of like that the number one cause of death is barbecue fork in the neck um, and a murder rate higher than anywhere else in the world. They never really delve into why that is, but certainly fan fiction writers extrapolated that it has to do with the magic of the Hellmouth as actually causing acceptance of these abnormalities, right? Um, and some, some authors have done better than others exploring the oddities of Sunnydale and how um, that actually the mayor, the mayor of Sunnydale actually contributes to like wiping the statistical data so that none of that information ever gets out to the public. But um, I'm not sure I understand this thing about fix done so that people are singing and dancing. I, I, when I've seen a, a single episode of a show where it's done in song and dance, a single episode of a show where people are singing and dancing to me would not count as magical realism. So if you're saying the you switch it up so that ever people are singing and dancing all the time, I still don't see how that would be magical realism. But I guess you could write it that way. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, why? I'm just confused. Like, how are they getting what, there? But more importantly, to, how, how do I get do off that magic? <laughs> I mean, unless you're having it be that people are a, a, a spell is being cast on people, but then people would be aware that they're under a spell. That could be an effect of somebody doing something naughty. But again, that could be anything. But yeah, I, Buffy, canonically, Buffy is not magical realism. Anything where the magic is a secret. From the like Harry the Potter population. is not magically, re not magical realism. Buffy and Harry Potter both are fantasy at the root. So this... The scene in Enchanted, I always interpreted that as being like any other musical where the characters are singing and dancing, but we are left to infer that it's not weird that they're singing and dancing, but the characters don't. It's like any other, it's like any musical you watch on Broadway, right? It's like when you watch Hamilton and all those dance and song numbers, that it didn't really happen that way, you know? So I always interpret Enchanted the same kind of way is that those, they, your suspension those behaviors disbelief. aren't being induced right they're they're not being induced by some kind of magical element oh you're talking okay so i was thinking about a different movie sorry hill oh i know what you're talking about so it i've the one the one you're talking about okay so you do have a character there in, in um i was thinking of the the one um the sing and dance episode um I think it was Ella Enchanted is what I was thinking about, but in Enchanted, I forgot about that, where they are singing and dancing and you have the one character who is really confused by the fact that everybody's singing and dancing. That feels like people under a spell, but I don't think I would call that magical realism because he doesn't know that there's magic. He's just really confused why everybody's, he probably thinks it's some sort of weird flash mob. <laughs> so unless magic is widely known and people are, People in a contemporary setting are going to write off something like that, mass delusion, drugs. If people are going to write it off as some other thing, like a flash mob or drugs or hallucinogens, you can't call it magical realism. Or if it's a big secret, it's not magical realism. Now, if you have magical realism, okay, so let's say you wanted to do, so we've got the singing and dancing thing. I would say magical realism that involves singing and dancing would be, let's say that on certain... Um, maybe on the equinoxes, okay, that 
whatever some magic from Gaia is released and people sing and dance for 72 hours. They're prone to just busting out in song and dance because the earth is you know, going into a period of either renewal in the spring, um, it's life, or it's going into a period of rest in the fall. And everybody, and, and so because of the energy the earth is putting out, that magical outpouring causes people to just spontaneously burst into song. And it's accepted widely that this happens. Here's hoping they that, all sound good. That, to me, would be an expression of magical realm if you wanted to do song and dance. But it would have to be tied to something that makes sense. Just people randomly singing, how would that be magical? Yeah, if people know that for the 72 hours around March 20th, people are going to be singing and dancing a lot, and they don't really want to deal with it, they buy earplugs. Exactly, Star. So, like, I'll be staying home this week because my neighbor really enjoys Oklahoma and I hate Oklahoma. And so I don't want to inadvertently punch my neighbor for singing all the songs from Oklahoma. And if I have to hear about the Surrey, what, what was it called with the fringe on top? Yeah. Surrey with the fringe on top. Yeah. I will fucking lose it. Chicks and geese and ducks are apparently still being victimized by that Surrey <laughs> with its fringe. Personally but victimized. <laughs> Although there's a really interesting Stargate fic where when Rodney gets stressed out, he sleepwalks and sings show tunes. But again, it has nothing to do with magical realism. No, so no, there's a, no. There's a lot of interesting tropes around people singing. But if you want it to be a tie to magical realism, you're going to have to do something where, A, it's understood and accepted that magic is causing this. And, and give a magical cause to it. So... That's about like, so, I mean, to me, that's something that if I wanted people singing for a magical reason, I would probably have it be related to the outpouring of nature energy just causes people to just randomly sing whatever's in their head or what they most recently heard or, or whatever, if, if that was my inclination. But, um, but otherwise, if secret magic causing it, it wouldn't be a, a magical realism thing to me. And that w could feel a little cracky. Also, by the way, this whole song and dance thing could feel cracky so you have to be careful how you implement it because really if you're if you want to write crack write crack but i but think the, the elements was, of magical realism don't, don't lean it. itself to crack and the question was about how to avoid your story feeling like crack so if you want to write crack write crack but this this is about how to avoid that vibe so that's what we're talking about um and i do think characters randomly busting out into song and into song is um, it, it could inherently be cracky. So if you want to use that kind of trope, you have to be careful with it because I've never seen one of those episodes um, of those TV shows that did the song and dance episode that I took seriously. Never. The closest one was the code black one with this woman who had this condition that caused her to hear everything around her in song. Um, and it's because the, re and it's because she wasn't the only, she, the care, the only, she wasn't, the only POV character, so you, the whole the whole episode wasn't a show tune. Um, yeah, definitely, you could have all kinds of with magical realism. You could have a lot of um, outside forces that could tick up magical incidents. And uh, Shadow mentions the um, the energy of the full moon, especially if you have a shifter universe with magical realism. Um, so you can now the thing is with magical realism, you could have a cracky idea, but that there's this whole thing of crack taken seriously. I certainly feeding frenzy is crack taken seriously. Some parts, some some episodes are a little bit more crack crack cracky because the author wanted because the thing is when you take a cracky fandom, 
like Warehouse 13 um, specifically, but the author who wrote Warehouse 13 knew they were writing a cracky fandom. Um, and you take a crack taken seriously idea with a cracky fandom, it's going to come off a little bit crackier than everything. Eureka is another fandom that's a little bit crack take, a little crackier. Um, but the concept is more crack taken seriously. So um, it is, that is another aspect you can take, is you can have ideas that are cracky at the bare bones of them, but implement them in a way that is taking them seriously. You, Kira, you are you usually classify Darkly Loyal as crack taken seriously, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you can't have a house elf, house elf sacrificing people to a volcano and not call it a little bit cracky. Or a lot cracky. Although for me, it's the Nundu Preserve and the little sack. <laughs> that sack is my favorite part, which is why that sack made an appearance in the Mandalorian. Winky pick. sack. It's so, the same sack? No, but it, the intent is the same. It might as well be the same sack. Did, would anybody know if it was the same sack? Winky Sack could have gotten moved to the Mandalorian. Because this, this well, Winky Sack could be that could be yeah, um, yeah Wireless Sack. It could be the the. It got passed down to to Winky yeah, since that's... since actually technically for those of you who aren't aware of it, Star Wars is historical. It's historical, yeah, yeah. Winky Sack historical is... science fiction. I think you mean evolve from whatever Grogu is. Not because, anyway. Um, so, some ideas are cracky on the surface, but it doesn't mean you can't write them in a serious way. I get a lot of cracky ideas that I write very seriously. So, um, I think when I first described a Leo Moto to people, they were kind of like thinking that I had taken a leave of my cracky senses. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I just try to picture her pitching that to somebody to, like for like network TV. So here's what happens. Severus Snape gets, gets tortured over several lifetimes and finally says, fuck it. And asks to be sent back in time so that he can raise Tom Riddle, the man who keeps murdering him, um, into being a good person. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> this is why I should, what? To, this why I should never be allowed to pitch. It's somebody a TV series. <laughs> You're going to do what now? But the execution was anything but crack, so. But some ideas will come across that way. So when it comes to magical realism, I am not looking for typically something that feels cracky. So even if it's a comedy fandom, the fandom itself is comedy. Because you can certainly write. There are, there are episodes of Friends that despite having a joke, like sitcoms, the idea is eventually you're going to laugh. But there are episodes of Friends and Frasier. And certainly MASH was also a sitcom. But there are many episodes that are not that funny. Um, and um, you can write in those fandoms and not have to be make it cracky so and you could certainly interject magical realism into some f comedy fandoms and have it be at the tone of the show i don't know fan fandoms that are already shows that are already full-on crack fest like the office i don't know what you would do with that if you wanted it to not be cracky you're already facing an uphill battle i read a soulmate story that had more magical realism than usual uh, somebody else was able to find it because I don't remember the name of it. It was one of those ones I was reading on my phone while I was at the doctor's office. And, you know, um, I'd have to look back through my history to, to even attempt to find it. And that is a, probably an exercise in futility considering how many fix I open and close. But it was a soulmate story. But it was a soulmate story of when you're ready to meet your soulmate. When you're ready. The words they write on their skin start appearing to you. So 
Buck apparently hit some moment in his life when he was ready to have a soulmate. At the same time, Eddie did. And Eddie started writing a to-do list and he was out of paper and he wrote it on his arm. And the first thing that he got was something like contact realtor. And Buck's like looking at his arm. The first time he gets a mark on his arm is like contact realtor. And he's like, what? So he's not responding because he's really confused by this. And Eddie keeps jotting notes on his arm because it's a bad habit he has. And then, um, I want to read this when they, when they, and and the magic is when they wash, it's not like a permanent mark. When they wash off whatever the ink is, the mark goes away. So Buck eventually responds and he and Eddie get to know each other long before um, they ever meet in the firehouse that day. And um, Buck reveals some stuff to Eddie through his, um, um, through writing to Eddie um, on his arm that, uh, that nobody else knows about him. And so he, it, which is one of the things he reveals is that he knows how to draw. And um, so he's drawing a design for Eddie um, on his arm the day. That Willow the found it for you. Thank you, Willow. Um, but it was, it had a lot more like this infusion of magic in it because of this communication that soulmates can do to one another. Um, and like, you could, and they also have that you can have multiple soulmates. Um, that it's not just a one and done kind of thing, which I actually appreciated. Um, so, like Maddie, like it mentions with Maddie when she's very young, she wanted a soulmate so badly that she was constantly writing on her arm, hoping that her soulmate would answer back. Um, so, you know, there are ways, but I've also read soulmate stories that felt like they had very had little to do with magical realism. Well, I would say this one felt like it had a lot to do with magical realism. Um, but you know. Your, your mileage may vary, but I don't think that. So, so the one of the other questions about was about putting um, magical realism into a science-heavy fandom, and does that? How was the question phrased? To get back to it, um, does putting magical realism into a science-heavy fandom make it make it harder to pull off a science-heavy fandom? Um, I guess it depends. You have to think about. This is where you have to think about your world building um, carefully. Because, um, yeah, that is the story. Um, you could do things that make that do invent that make the science and the magic incompatible, um, and that's why you have to be careful about thinking about your ripples. Like you don't want to make you know if if like if you're going to make it possible so that people can get away with crimes magically, you're going to have to have different um, divisions in law enforcement that deal with magical crimes, right? Um, it doesn't invalidate science, but it becomes a different, a, another branch of science. So you're going to have to deal with that. It's just something you, if you're going to focus on the science side of it. Um, what's happening, Twy, is that um, whenever you, if you're not logged in, when you hit a link that is for logged in members only, when you then log in, it will take you back to the last story you read. So once you're logged in, you need to be sure you're hitting that link again. It's a weird thing. It's a weird little quirk I've encountered before with um, with AO3 is because that's that's a registered users only thing. If you weren't didn't happen to be logged in when you popped that link, um, it's gonna once you log in, it doesn't take you to this link. It takes you to the last story you had open. I don't know why it does that, but um, anywho, um, so science heavy fandoms. Um, the thing is, most science heavy fandoms aren't really all that sciencey because very few of them are very accurate on the science front. I mean, I put the Arthur C. Clarke on the uh, the quote 
on the summary for the podcast, um, which is my podcast text. Um, it's not there. I hate that. What? Um, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? Yes. Um, I think that's something that you can kind of play with in science-heavy fandoms, like um, in Stargate. Um, a lot of the things that happen in Stargate could have magical elements, but don't. So if you were going to weave magical realism into a Stargate universe, one of the things that you might do is change the Stargate so that it stops being like a whole wormhole thing and becomes a magical portal thing. Yeah. And these portals connect planets all over the galaxy and all then, you know, of course, all the way into Pegasus. Um, and they're using these portals to explore. So it's more of the Stargate becomes known. Right. And it would be like... Um, gateways but there could be all kinds of magical elements on the planet already and these portals are just one of them and the sgc or whatever you would end up calling it has figured them out has figured out how to activate it and turn it on and suddenly this portal on earth is not just um this oddity that they never really could explain it's connected to all these other portals and other worlds um and they're then you can kind of fall into Stargate canon a little bit, but just by replacing the Stargate with a magical element, um, and there are already other magic elements on the planet, so even if the Stargate itself isn't known, the other elements are. Like, your characters can have um, extrasensory perception, um, telekinesis. Um, now, see, I would definitely... There can that, be... I think that's the route I would go. Because, I mean... You have, there's actually something kind of built in that's un, un, underdeveloped, in my opinion, in the canon that you could replace with some magical realism, which is the ancients haven't got much legacy in humans other than the ATA gene, which doesn't do much except for, yeah, it's a technology activator. But what if there was more? What if some of those abilities the ancients had expressed themselves as what looks like magic? People could do, some people had telepathy or empathy or there was some uh, telekinesis or remote viewing or people had all these psychic powers effectively so people could heal and it's all the legacy of the ancients still in their dna but and if you want to keep the stargate program intact as is they then back they then figure out they don't know what the source of all of this is. they just know this is the way humans are the way humans always are have been but they figure it out through the stargate program that this is all the legacy of the ancients mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember the gift series from Wraithbait, kind of like focusing on the, the gifts of the ancients. Um, been decades since I read it, or maybe even more. Um, and, I've never been, I never read a lot in Stargate at all, um, outside of stuff that's mm -hmm. been recommended to me. And by the time I started reading in Stargate, Wraithbait was gone within a year. Yeah, so, there's a lot of stuff um, I've never read. But I think read. most of Wraithbait is on AO3 now. Um, but also really? we did some exploring, well, I did some exploring of ancient gifts in Lantean legacy where, when they are, um, genetically modified by the city, they get the same gifts the ancients got because those gifts came from the city. So <clears throat> that's how I did that in, um, so I, my suggestion would be to explore something like the legacy of the ancients as a form of magical realism, but, um, if people feel like it's already been done, then you don't have to explore it that way. But you could also say the Nox could actually be more magical than they are anything else. 
Yeah, true. Because we see her hiding that weapon with no visible technology. She's using some innate gift of her own to hide it. And maybe she is so sufficiently advanced that it's indistinguishable from magic. But it could just be magic. They never really explain the Nox gifts. Their flying city, their ability to resurrect the dead <laughs> without a sarcophagus. Because the first time we meet the Nox, SG-1's wiped out by Jaffa. They're all killed. And the Nox bring them back. Right. So there are already elements in like Stargate itself that lean towards magical realism um, that could be incorporated into an, a, a large AU. And there are other like paranormal situations that could or could not be magical realism, depending on how those things are manifesting. Like um, you can dig in and make werewolves a deeply biological concept which leans itself towards paranormal and science fiction, or you could create a world where magic and humans met and shifters were the result. Now, I, I've definitely so, read par paranormal stories where um, werewolves and, and all shifters, all shifters come across as very magical and other stories where they don't, where it's just like, this is just a different expression of nature. And, um, and so how you develop your own world building um, really, I think makes a really big difference. But I think anytime you, um, that the way you make it work is to weave it into the base of your world building. Um, you don't build on top of it and you don't let it slide on top of your world building as an add-on. You have to weave it in so that it's part of the fabric of your whole world. Otherwise, it's going to look, to me as a reader, it's going to look weird and also like a gimmick. Does that make sense? It's like, it, if you can take away the elements of magic from your story and not significantly alter your story, you're, you've not written magical realism. That's kind of like when you're writing urban fantasy that has a relationship in it. Well, if you can't take the relationship out of your urban fantasy story, you've not written urban fantasy. You've written paranormal romance. Now, you're... <laughs> Some people can be a little bit rigid about what that means. If if you have a story that your basic plot is still intact once you take the relationship out, you've got urban fantasy. Your relationship can be an entire subplot. But if you can can't if you removing the relationship decimates the story, you've um you've, you've written, written a par paranormal romance. And that was my biggest stumbling block in the urban fantasy challenge. I actually had to remove um several plot points. Did, when I was writing, because I realized I had written, I had plotted more of a paranormal romance than I had an urban fantasy, which was the challenge. And I really wanted to meet the challenge um, with the subtle body. And I felt like I wasn't doing it with the plot points that I had. So I had to kind of like in the middle of the challenge, kind of revamp my plot points a little bit um, so that their relationship was a genuine subplot that could be removed and not really significantly their romantic feelings could be removed and it wouldn't significantly impact the plot because they weren't cursed because they were in love. They were cursed because that guy was rejected. And that's, that was an important distinction for me at least. Yeah. 
So when it comes to magical realism, if you can pull out all the elements of magical realism and you still have a fully intact plot and story, then I don't think you've actually written magical realism. No, I think it has I to couldn't integral. pull out the magical elements of um, turning tables and still have a story. It would never leave. <laughs> it would never be anything. They'd just be sitting there in a cemetery. <laughs> well, your whole your whole story pivots around Buck's ability to turn time. So right, I mean, it's um, you can. And the thing is, this is a game where sometimes people can get really fixated on something that's very literal. That it doesn't mean that you can't have canon circumstances. You just have to figure out how how things would be because things would be slightly different when you've got magical like so let's say you're you've got a 911 verse where everybody let's say almost everybody maybe not everybody everybody but maybe almost everybody has some little bit of magic of some kind they are able to do something i typically when i typically write you know e, you know psychic powers whatever i tend to rule out true precognition you know, hints about something being wrong, but true precognition is a very difficult thing to play with in a psychic universe. Um, and those people tend, I would imagine that it, it, it leads, lends something very dark, people who actually can see the future. Um, but anyway, um, if you have everybody who has a little bit of an, an, some sort of a magical ability, you just need to figure out how that would have changed their course up to that point subtly. Because you always, if you want your characters to all still be in that same fire station, you don't want to change their course in life too much, but you, you figure you need to figure out what would be different, what subtle adjustments have happened because of whatever ability you've given them. So if you've got one person who's an empath, if you give, let's say you've given Buck the ability, let's say he's an empath, okay? Um, he's not going to be, he's going to have some different, different interpersonal relationships. He's probably not going to have been as free with sex, especially if he's um, touch empathy, he's not going to probably want to be close to people who are giving off negative emotional vibes. So it's going to alter him a little bit. So you got to figure these things out. Like, how does it impact them? What, what would have changed? Um, but if but your your plot needs to then center around, it doesn't mean that they're not at the 118. You don't have to craft a whole new universe. But they do need to, the plot needs to somewhat center around these magical abilities. Uh, uh, if you're just telling them going to to calls, and putting out fires, then the magical realism is irrelevant. Well, the thing is, is if this was the kind of world where everybody had a little bit of magic, um, there would be first responders would have to be able to deal with issues involving empathy, telepathy, telekinesis, um, because they would. I mean, the world would have evolved where first that would be part of a first responder's job: fight fires teach that kid or, or get that kid to stop levitating his mom. <laughs> you need to bring your mom down, baby. You need to bring her real gentle. <laughs> it could be like that having a certain, like a, like the, a station might be required of a certain number of like psi nulls on this, on the, on each shift because to help with people who have abilities that are out of control. Um, that like every apparatus has to have somebody that's psi null on the, on board just like they have to have an engineer or something like that. You know, it could just be, you just have to figure out what they, how these things are impacted. But if, like, if, if they're just, now if they're going to calls and dealing with magical stuff, well, that works. If they're just going to put out fires and they're doing fire safety lectures, you've put all this magic in, 
and it serves and you could take it out and the story is basically the same that's what that's what we mean or what kira meant by you haven't achieved magical realism because the story the magical realism becomes irrelevant to the story. one of the things that i was earlier we were talking about sentinels no sentinels are known being magical realism i'd never really considered it that way um and i really wrapped myself around the axle when i was plotting requiem trying to write trying to think about how magical realism would work and what i would do with it and how to weave it into my world so that it was fundamental um and what i was sitting here thinking is that i don't actually often write the mystical parts of the sentinels are known i don't often interact with spirit animals it's it's very rare my characters don't i mean um i don't do a lot of like uh astral projection or you know, dream walking or just it's very rare i did more of it in my harry potter sentinel au that i'm doing for um, the raven and the lion i think i've done that i think i guess i guess one of the reasons why it's, it immediately stuck out to me as magical realism because i've done the whole exploration of the spirit realm quite yeah a bit. you did and with that crow thing was um definitely path of the crow had it um and uh <coughs> coming journey home. home journey home <laughs> had it and um ascend for the man um actually the most which it's it's alluded to in in send for the man but it was the plotting that i did for because i referred to the because tony i mean alex and alex has no spirit animal in send for the man and so therefore tony stark has and it's because um what i said in that story was that um spirit animals are the the conduit for psionic energy um when he's talking to i think it's infinity that he's talking to on the spirit plane that a uh, spirit animal because he asked why he doesn't have a spirit animal and um and they said that spirit animals are the conduits for psionic energy um to help them reach and 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 that alex is the master of the psionic plane so why would he need a conduit to a plane that he's the master of which it never goes any further than explaining that um but that's the same reason why Tony Stark doesn't have a spirit animal is because his bond to Alex is more pr profound than anything he would have to a spirit animal. But the the reasons for all of that are actually all in the plot for the sequel. Um, so it's just alluded to the sort of the, the beginnings of it were sort of foreshadowed in that story. I'll be like, if I was Alex, I'd be like, oh, that's not, that's really cool. But I still would like a spirit friend. <laughs> I want my, I want, my my brothers all have animals and I just I, I just want a friend. <laughs> Can't you I, just give me one? <laughs> well, Tony builds him a an Iron Man suit called Buttercup that follows him around and Alex <laughs> Alex won't get in it because he doesn't like to fly, so he just lets it stalk him around the penthouse and he's like he's like, get in the suit. He's like, No, I don't like to fly. <laughs> But it has its own AI, and so it, it, it that's becomes his friend, but he won't get in the suit. That's really cute. But yeah, I mean, I'd be like, but I want a friend. But I want a friend. <laughs> but the purpose for all of that in that story was because um, the cosmic entities were setting up for someone to be able to handle Thanos. Because they knew the threat of Thanos was coming. And so that's what that was all about. Was they were giving somebody the ability to handle um being a weapon against being being able to weaponize a psionic plane against Thanos. So, um, well, one thing I would say that I struggled with when I was writing, well, I'm, I'm still currently writing Requiem. I am, um, I, I finished novel, novella two, and I'm kind of stumbling around novella three because I don't know which elements from canon that I want to keep 
moving into that part of canon, um, which is to say probably not a lot. I think I know which 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 decision you're struggling with. Yeah, I, I, I'm um, struggling with it too. So yeah, um, well, I, there, there's a couple of decisions that I'm struggling with when it comes to um, the arc I'm moving into. Um, there's the bombing. Um, there's Shannon's death, and and the tsunami. Um, and also there's a there's a there's some foreshadowing I did with her boyfriend that I don't know what I want to do with. Um, yeah. And then of course there's also some foreshadowing um, that's basically if you if you're familiar with canon and Maddie's circumstances, you know that Doug Kendall is looming in the background. Yeah. Um, so there's there, there's a couple there's, there's there's some elements that I'm kind of working through. Um, but one of the things I struggled with when I first started writing it was I'm so used to magic being a secret, 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 that it was hard for me in my first draft to write a world where magic is known and accepted and everybody, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. You got magic, maybe, you know. Um, and in part two, I kind of explore like what is known about magic about you know um various kinds of um gifts that people have because christopher asks um and um because christopher basically outs buck to his family about his magic because he's kind of kept it a secret from them they knew that he was special but he didn't want to burden them with the full measure of what he had going on and also he didn't want to admit that he let his parents die um <clears throat> Well, it's not that he let them die. He just didn't, it didn't occur to him to try no, to save well, them. Well, he didn't. I mean, I it is my head canon that he did get a nudge to call them and just didn't. Uh, whether or not he ever admits that or not is you know up for debate. Um, and he never considered turning for them because he would. He didn't think it was. It was. It was. A, I don't know if magic would have let him, but he never considered it. Yeah. To, to try to save them. Um, he doesn't want to admit that to um, his brother and sister. And so he's kind of kept his magic to, to himself in that range. And he's been doing it for a while, but Christopher outs him. And because Christopher has a little gift of his own. And, um, but it was really hard to get past that. Keep it a secret, keep it a secret, keep it a secret. So my first rough draft of turning tables was really wonky. And I had to go back and like add some scenes and put some um, put some knowledge in it and give Buck a history with the city and with Athena specifically that he didn't have in the original rough draft because I was just trying to feel my way through it. So it was a stumbling block. And I think that um, anybody, whether you're a pantser or a plotter, when you're moving into a new genre, you're going to have that um, those moments where it's not working and you're not sure how to fix it. So you just got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you figure out what works for you and what is comfortable to you. Um, when it comes to any genre, not just magical realism, but maybe especially one that you've never really read a lot of, because I've not read a lot of magical realism, unless you count the Sentinel fusions of which I read a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do, but I mean, it also, I think sometimes we have to kind of like think about how we define our magical realism, because I do think that, um, particularly some more than others, some soulmate verses really do meet that bar. Um, I think the red strings, everybody just accepts that there are red strings everywhere that they can't see. 
right? uh, unless it's their own string. And they're just used to that string just following them around. I'm like, dude, no. Uh, just imagine, just, ima just imagine out of the peripheral, out of the corner of your eye, there's a little red string following you around your whole life. I guess you'd be used to it. But the idea is just pure damn aggravating to me. And I would hate to be one of the people who could see everybody's strings. <laughs> that would be an interesting exploration of that soulmate magic. Um, I'm almost finished. Well, I'm working on every moment and that will be popping. Not the whole thing, but certainly the first couple episodes will be up before the, um, before the first of November. Um, and I would say that delves more into the magical realism side of soulmates, as opposed to just, we have an inexplicable connection because there's definitely a magical element. There's a fate element. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Um, so, um, but the person who asked the question that kind of got us to thinking about this was specifically about, you know, while, while 911, which is kind of often what I think about, um, where I, when I think of like a contemporary fandom that brings the complexity of trying to do magical realism, and it isn't what I would call a science heavy fandom. Um, it doesn't have the complication of trying to do, because they specifically called out like CSI. So it doesn't have the complication of like trying to do, um, solving crimes or whatever. And I think that that's something that you'd have to think about, like how you wanted to handle it. Um, what does law enforcement look like? You know, but you could, you could, this is one of those situations where you could really get in your own way and make your life really hard if you implemented your world building in a bad way. Yeah. Um, uh, you, demons, I think is a really good example of this because like just putting demons in your work doubles your character count yeah which to me when it comes to like this question the demon the double character count to me is the least problematic aspect because do yeah demons, do they have personality do they have dialogue no yeah but getting the character issues and the problem do, when it comes to the science side of it do demons have for do they leave forensics do they actually have weight are they are they are they that substantial i mean what is your what what part of the demon world building are you going to use did does, does a, how does do first a, responders, how far can a first responder be from their demon? Right. Does the Are demons demon, fireproof? Right. They're, I doubt it. But does a, does, a demon, does a demon of a killer leave DNA evidence behind? Um, there's so many logistical issues way beyond just the character count. Because the character count, that's a characterization issue. But like how many characters do you want in your story if you're doing, if you're doing just a like a short two-person story or romance, you've still got four characters, okay? So you're doubling everything. And you got to deal with the names and personalities. But set that aside. Logistics. There's all these questions about... How do planes work? I mean... Touching somebody else's demon is, a, is considered taboo. Well, what if your demon's a big, giant-ass bear? Well, but what if, what if you've been in a car accident and you and your demon are injured? What is the protocol for... for for a fire department for rescuing somebody who's got a demon. I, I read a fic in the 911 fandom where that was a thing and Buck was specifically trained to um his demon was a dog and he was him and his demon were specifically trained to deal with demon injuries and his demon would pick up other demons um and take them for medical care like to the place like where, wherever they had to go like like a a gurney um he'd pick him up the which demon. Makes, which makes sense to me, but I would think at some point that Buck would have to handle some demons, that it wouldn't be able to be just his demon handling demons, because it just doesn't make sense that it's always going to go that. What if it's a big demon that's too big for right. the demon to handle? 
Um, I think there would have to be a protocol where, you know, certain people are certified and bonded to, to care for demons because like if the demon is, if, 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 if demons are physical, um, physical entities and then they have physical injuries, there has to be like veterinarians who are specifically trained to treat demons. Right. Yeah. That verse is called Heart and Soul by Scarlet Manuka. And That's you can find it. That. And you can find it on um, AO3. Scarlet, S C A R L E T M A N U K A. Heart and yeah. Soul demon verse. All, Scarlet Manuka is all one word. Um, by the way, just something that came occurred to me earlier and about this as well is when you're, when you're, noodling on your idea for your world building whether it's a demon verse you want to write demons in 911 or like when we were talking about the ancients leaving behind a legacy to um in the actual abilities of people that some of those things that ancients could do survived in human genetics if you want to work on your world building for something like that and somebody says you know oh this that's been done in this story da, 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 i would absolutely suggest that you do not read a story that is already similar to an idea you're trying to develop because That's for starters, weird. well, because for, for starters, there's a few, there's a, there's a, actually there's, there's so much wrong with that in my opinion, <laughs> but if you would have developed the idea similar, let's say you would have, let's say you would have developed the idea very similarly to on your own to what this other person has written. Now you have read what they wrote and now you're going to feel like you, you can't even use the idea that you would have organically come up with on your own. Because you could be sitting there reading it going, I would have gone the exact same direction with this. But now you feel like your whole creative space is tainted because you've read this thing. So if somebody says, oh, there's something similar that's already kind of been done, um, you could go, don't, don't, don't. Just keep working on your idea. And if you want to read it later, read it later. And also, don't be that person who suggests that. That's part, that. That's a form of idea sniping and gatekeeping in fandom that I see all the time. And we actually did a podcast about it. Um, when someone presents to you an idea that they're really enamored with and you start giving them links to people who've already done it, you're being an asshole. No matter your intentions, you're being an asshole. So don't do that. So it's one thing. I mean, what we're doing here is we're talking about like different implementations of potential ideas. And we're talking about the you know, that there is already a, a demon verse for 911. But if you wanted to write a demon verse, no, I wasn't, I wasn't talking about that. But if you're being, if, oh, you no, no, write, Jace, not you. if you're wanting to write a demon verse for 911, even though this series already exists, I would recommend you develop your idea and not go read this one. So, so if I think some people, sometimes people try to be helpful in fandom and they don't realize what they're doing until sometimes years later. Every once in a while, I'll get a comment from somebody. You know, I'm really sorry I asked you for more five years ago. <laughs> no, I don't mean anything that we're doing like here on the podcast because this is more of a, a brainstorming kind of thing. We're talking about, you know, this is some ways you could go. But if, if in the course of anything we discussed tonight, we talk about, any, you know, it comes up, there's an example of this kind of thing already, like this, this demon verse. If you think you might want to write a demon verse, I would not recommend going and reading a demon verse read the source material if you want to but i wouldn't go recommend go reading like you know because you don't want somebody else's because one of the things about a demon story is you don't want somebody else's interpretation of um what the what somebody's everybody's demons are going to be 
in your head because let's say you would have gone the same direction with the main characters demons um if you've read that story first now your brain is like did i come up with that on my own or did i come up with it because i read this thing here it's just it's just a suggestion that you as 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 somebody trying to come up with a story idea not go try to read stories that are like the idea you're trying to come up with yeah don't treat other people's work like research unless you're writing an academic paper because then that would be the point. Because it will muddy your headcanon. And people do. You can very much independently come up with similar ideas. Um, it's funny. There's a... Um, somebody wrote me shortly after I... Oh, okay. Did I post it? Uh, I want to say these stories. Either they posted the same day or they posted like a day apart. Uh, why can't I find anything on my own website? This is just terrible. It's like I wasn't even organized or anything. Hmm. Speaking I'm of, sorry, a day apart. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm. Julie pointed out to me that my website could use some organization. So if you go over I, to the fandom it's... tab, you will now see that I have an alphabetical list of um, all of my stories in um, by title. So, which I appreciate. I all I said was the only time I ever have a hard time finding anything on your site was when I'm trying to find your main series page. That's it. That's all I said. And I always, I always. Google yeah, you for won't it. have that problem anymore. That's true. And you said, well, you just have to hit the fandom. I said, yeah, but like if you're looking at like Harry Potter, how much do you have to scroll through to go find <laughs> like recording Hermione Granger, or the main series page recording Hermione Granger? It's like, what? anyway, but yeah, I mean, I appreciate so, yeah. I just, it. Was, it was just an idle comment. Y'all are welcome. Um, <laughs> I know you do, Lady Holder, and so does Jilly. And now I have a list too. So y'all suck it. <laughs> but, um, no, so, like, I posted a, the first 911 story I posted on January 31st called Here For You. It's my first 911 story. And um, it's this, the basic premise is that when Buck is leaving Abby, that um, moves in with Eddie instead of going to stay with Chim and then moving in with a Ma Maddie. That's just the basic premise of it. So it's about, I want to say it's about 25K, 23K, something like mm, that. Some of that area. The day before, which I think it was the day before, the same day, um, another author finalized um, the same basic premise of the story, which is that when Buck left Abby's, he went and stayed with Eddie rather than going to live with Chimney. Now, I guess they'd started, they'd posted some of the parts a week prior to that, but they finalized their story, so I think about 30K or something. So somebody wrote me and asked me, this was way back like in February or March, if I had gotten this idea from them. Um, yeah, she got it and wrote it in 12 hours. <laughs> no, wrote it, she... edited it, it got beta and <laughs> got art made like three months before. <laughs> so I, the funny thing is, is that this other author had apparently posted the first parts of this story like a week before, so like on the 20th, the 22nd, 23rd, somewhere in there. So like a week before they final, put up the final parts of the post, which was like on the 30th, the 31st. And their story's a little longer than mine. And um, I was like, for starters, I'd been signed up for this challenge for months. I My posting date for this story by this title had been declared for weeks. So, you know, so I would have had to have gotten, if assuming I did take this idea, which is their supposition that I got this idea from this author, I would have had to have signed up for this challenge, claimed the art months ago, claimed a posting date of the 31st, just so that I could sit on my ass and wait for somebody to write a story I was inspired by so that I could steal the idea and then whip it out in a week. 
which could I write 23K and finish it in a week? Yes. Yes, I could. It wouldn't be a great week for me, but I could. It's possible. But it, it also, because this is part of a challenge, it implies a level of, I don't know, precognition that is weird. But it was just so... I mean, I would challenge them to, I would be like, so this is, these two stories are the only stories where Buck moves in with Eddie. No, they, they aren't. But I, because that is, is, is that the only element that's really the same? I, I mean, I haven't read the other story, but. Oh, okay. From, from what they've described to me, it's, it's, I've got it on my, my to read list, but it seems I mean, like the, the time, the timing know. is interesting because there are other stories. I mean, I've read another story where. Buck answers a roommate wanted ad and he moves in with Eddie. Um, around that timing? Because that thing is, that's right after Eddie came to the station. So, But the, the whole timing of Eddie inviting Buck to come, I guess there's a similarity of concept there, of Eddie inviting Buck to come stay with him rather than when he's leaving Abby. It, but the thing is, that it's just not such a bizarre stretch. It, it, it's not so weird. But anyway... Um, so yes, I mean, people... especially if Eddie is renting out a room, um, why not rent it to somebody that an, an, another first responder that he knows, mm -hmm. especially just... with his kid in the house. So, um, but the implication was that the only way I could come up with this idea was to go trolling on Ao3 up until the very last minute, looking for somebody who gave me an idea, which is a little bit weird. But the the point is, is that these stories were. Because you had two stories, I think one of them's over 30k and mine's 23. Novella length, both of them novella length. Similar starting point in concept, right? Obviously can be conceived completely separately. So, but if I had gone and read their story first, then I would have felt weird about the idea I already had for that story. Which is one of the reasons why when I am... Whenever I talk about an idea on the podcast, people start sending me links of things that are like that. I just ignore all that stuff. I don't, I, I don't say anything about it on the podcast, but if I'm actually plotting for something I want to write and people are sending me links of similar ideas, I completely ignore it. I don't click on them. I don't make notes of them. I just completely ignore it because the last thing I want to do is go read something that is conceptually similar in somebody else's mind to the idea that I'm trying to formulate. Why would I do that? I had a weird thing. I um, wrote Hold My Coffee. Um, is by no means the first female McKay story in Stargate. Um, the first one I ever read was the Lallyverse. Loved it. Um, when I was... I, I wrote um, Hold My Coffee out of spite. It's just 100% spite fic. Because I was doing these little shorts. Um, and someone got pissy with me about writing female McKay. So of course I sat down and wrote a whole series. Because um, spite and porn or basically how I operate. Um, <clears throat> a couple, like six or seven months after I posted the first part of Hold My Coffee, uh, someone wrote a really popular female McKay for Rough Trade. Uh, it was very well received um, during the challenge. I didn't get a chance to read it before I cleaned off because I was very busy during that time. I read some of it, but I, I, I didn't get to finish it. So that's kind of disappointing. But anyways, that's my personal disappointment. Not something you guys have to worry about. Uh, a couple of months after that, I finished the first season of Hold My Coffee. Maybe weeks. I don't know. And someone commented on it and basically said that they felt like they were reading the other person's story fundamentally they 
they're they're night and day, honestly. Um, but also the implication was was that I saw that person's idea, even though I had written "Hold My Coffee" like six months before <coughs> that rough trade event even happened. I think it was similar in the fact that um, McKay and John uh, were coming together as the expedition was being formed to go to Pegasus. Um, but that's probably, I mean, but I mean, that's where a lot of Stargate stories start. Because yeah. That's literally where Atlantis starts. <laughs> right. And, and to say that those two stories are similar, it's only say they're only saying it's similar because it's female McKay, because they wouldn't say it was similar if you had a male McKay and a male John getting together at that point, because that's been done how many times? It's been done a lot. So people will look for similarities when they want to accuse you of something. But I just I brought this up because I'm just saying that I don't go read in the trope I'm trying. Like if I wanted to write magical realism in 911, I wouldn't go try to find all the magical realism in 911 and read it. I'm working on something wish babies right now. I'm the only wish baby things I've read is I'm not going to read any other wish baby stories. If, if people if people sent me a bunch of links for wish babies, there's um that might be the roommate one I read is I want all your midnights. That might be it. Yeah, that is it. Thank you, Willow. Um, but um, it's called I Want All Your Midnights by Allie Saved the Day All One. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't research for my ideas. I don't, I don't plumb for my ideas by reading in that in the fandom. It is. And I think sometimes people think that they're being helpful when like when we're because we're not really plotting tonight. So I'm not talking about tonight. But like when, when I'm plotting something or when Kira's plotting is they'll send like links of like stuff that's similar. It's like, OK, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. Because there are two camps, right? Either they're trying to be helpful or they're saying, don't bother writing this. Someone already did it and they did it better than you will. And either isn't either isn't helpful because if it's the second one, fuck you. And if it's the <laughs> if in it's your the, eye, <laughs> if it's the former, um, I'm not gonna. You're, you're misinterpreting my process to think that I'm going to do my plot research by reading somebody else's material. So, um, but sometimes now, sometimes we're just noodling stuff, and a lot of the stuff that comes up, it's really about finding entertaining things to read. Oh, this was a really fun thing I read, and or or somebody did this spin on this trope, like when we were talking about, you know, this thing we came up before we talked about on the before the podcast started about a miscommunication via text. Um, but in the context of magical realism, if I were actually actively plotting something magical realism on this, I wouldn't want people sending me links of stuff like what I said I was plotting. Now people were sending me links earlier about stuff. Uh, we're, we're putting up links earlier about because about uh, m musical stuff. Which is totally fine because I wasn't getting it. That's not what I'm talking about at all, you know, because I wasn't getting how that was magical realism. So having an example of how that could be magical realism um, is informative versus, you know, isn't yeah. Because sometimes you're looking. There's a difference between informative and oh, here's an example. Because like like here's that there's two examples. Either here's something like that, so you can go and get some ideas, huh? Or <laughs> this has already been done. Move on. Fuck um, you. <laughs> everything but has already it is, been done. But here's the thing. Yeah, there are no original ideas. You cannot give me a single movie being made this year, came out last year, coming out next year, that I could not tell you eight or nine different versions of it 
a hundred different versions of it. Um, a really popular example for those of you in my age group, if you've ever read, if you've, if you've ever watched Pretty Woman, that's basically Cinderella. <laughs> uh, so, and like there are like seven to nine plots. Inception. Inception is uh, man versus reality, man versus machine, uh, which is the which is the th the thematic. It's also a heist. It is literally a heist. And there have been hundreds of movies made about different kinds of heists. So all that is, is um, they are committing industrial espionage via a mental heist. So basically, it's like Ocean's Eleven, except it happens in one person's brain. But they steal from a casino. Same difference. Because really, they're not, there's no, there's no original idea left. It's about your execution. But we did a whole podcast about the seven or nine plots. I think seven is limited because the definition of the seven I find for a lot of modern romances, except perhaps uh, is, is very limited. But mm -hmm. um, I think, I think when we looked at the nine, it made a little bit more sense, but I think mm -hmm. somebody else defined the, what was it? Like 36 basic plots, but whichever, which, whichever somebody, somebody did 11 and there's, there's all these, there's all these different models but I don't think I've ever, I think the most I've ever seen anybody break it down as was 36. Um, but even that 36, some of them were basically repeat, just repeats. this one thing, right? right? It's like man versus machine, man versus the world, you know, um, which is basic concepts. And they were just twisting the concept, but it was still the same basic concept. And like I said, it's not about the idea itself. It's about the execution. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's an interesting thing that often fan fiction writers wind up more preoccupied with this idea of originality, which is kind of hysterical because often there's less originality. Um, and much they're literally writing on the backs of other writers in fandom. Right. So it's kind of, and, and they're writing um, often because they're, they're unaware. And often sometimes it's weird to me that often sometimes fan fiction writers, especially new fan fiction writers are not very well read. And they think they're being super original and their story, this thing they think is just this golden gem. It's like almost a cliched approach to, you know, uh, for instance, the, the quest or the voyage and the return. It's like, um, were you trying to write the Odyssey? Because <laughs> you did. Good job. <laughs> you did in a really kind of cliche kind of way. Um, so, you know, I mean, when I'm getting the Odyssey, um, under under the under the covers and they think it's like rock solid original and it's like but it isn't so but the thing is and that's and that's fine it's fine it it doesn't mean it's not good but then they're sitting out there jealously guarding it and it's like have you ever read anything before fan fiction okay well that explains a lot okay now i get it because there's this weird divide there are a lot of fan fiction writers who are very fanfic not fiction writers fan fiction readers who are very well read um and then there's this weird, like all of a sudden you'll, there's like this gap, and then there's a bunch that like never have never read anything. So, I think that gap is about fandom itself. Like there are fans, and then there are readers. And sometimes, like for me, for instance, for instance, as a reader, I could not financially keep up with myself. So fandom is the way I supplement my reading for free. Because I could not afford to keep myself in books. 
right? I mean, because there are days when I can, depending on like my situation, like if I'm, you know, if, if stuff is acting up and I can't really move around anywhere, I have to stay in my bed. I can read two or three books. That's five, six dollars a piece. And when you have a 30 day, a $30 day book habit, fandom <laughs> is a money saver because when you could go over to AO3 and read 3 million words, <laughs> versus spending $55 on 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 Amazon to get that that equivalent of books. I mean, it's it, great. It's a big thing. But it's but I mean, you find unique and original original executions of ideas you've read before. It's like, wow, I love the way this person spun this or how they're they're the way they subverted this trope or just their fresh take on this person's characterization even if it's a tried and true. I mean, you, you may you may have read a million but post lawsuit, Buck is annoyed with his team stories. But maybe this is the one that really does it for you because, you know, he's not out in the parking lot crying about it. Someone That's just said in the theme. chat room, I spent almost four hundred a month on Amazon before I found fan fiction. Wow, Jeep. Well, I wasn't gonna call him out like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jeep. That's an immense Sorry. habit, dude. Sorry. We can find this and edit it out. <laughs> you just startled me. I wasn't even looking at the chat. <clears throat> but I, that's, yeah, but I mean, I probably could spend that much myself a month if I didn't have fandom to read and read it. <laughs> oh, Although, it was the first month you had your Kindle. Yeah, I mean, I've been there. I've definitely had months way back. And also when I had more discretion, when I spent a, that much money on books. Um, and yeah, it can be, you can rack up a bill on your Kindle without even realizing it. Um, I don't like Kindle Unlimited, but I get why people participate in it. Um, if you're a voracious reader and you happen to find stuff on Kindle Unlimited that you like, the problem is there's not a lot on Kindle Unlimited that I wanted to read. Right. Um, you it can be a really good deal to spend $10 a month or whatever and, and get all that material. Um, I am in that transition where I'm transitioning entirely to digital books because my paper books, um, my vision has changed so much that it's difficult to read a paper book now. And I'm very used to reading on the Kindle with the black screen and I can make the text as big as I need it to. Well, one of my biggest stumbling blocks is replacing the Elizabeth Peter series. There are like 21 books and they're six bucks a piece. Or more, depending on how old they are. I think my sister. I tell you about the things my sister did. I don't. I don't actually know the legality of this, honestly. So I don't know. If, but I. I think it's probably okay. When I think about it, I mean, she owned the books. She owned the paperback books that weren't in print anymore. Um, she's got. She's got several commercial grade scanners, duplex scanners. She OCR um, them. She, 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 well, not, she didn't need, she didn't need to OCR them. She just needed to create a PDF from them, but she, um, cut the bindings off. She took pictures of the whole process. She cut the bindings off. She scanned them in, um, converted them into eBooks, um, and then showed them going into the, she took a, you know, pit photos of them going into a shredder. So it's not like she I think as long them. as she doesn't distribute them, then. Yeah. She, she hasn't, hasn't broken them. Yeah. Because I mean, she, really copyright law is about distribution. Right. So she, I mean, she owned her copy of the book. She destroyed her copy of the book. She, you know, converted it, it, it destroyed her copy of the book to convert it into an ebook, but that's what she did. I have all the all in desk books on um, digital because we, uh, me and my mom read the in desk books and we only had, because um, we share an Amazon Kindle, we, we share an Amazon account because my mom can't be trusted to have her own Amazon 
I mean, she's almost 70. And, um, she's technologically savvy when she wants to be. Like this heifer. She has an iPhone. She has an iPad. She has a Kindle Fire. She has two Kindle Fires. Um, I know. I know she listens. She knows. She knows about herself. Um, and she listens to the podcast on Spotify, by the way. Uh, regrets. Regret. The regret is deep. But anyways. Um, but then she'll be like, honey, can, can you order such and such for me on Amazon? As she calls me from her iPad. <laughs> order it for yourself, mama. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So anyway, we have to share an account. My mother and I split the cost of replacing the in-death books in paperback um, to um, digital. And for, for anybody who's like, are, are you cheating because you're sharing your Amazon account and your Amazon Kindle books with your mom? No, I'm not. Most Kindle books come with like, you can have it on three or four devices, sometimes five devices, depending on the publisher. Um, and you could definitely share with anybody who's in your household. So... Um, and if they're so yeah, my mom is um, so my mom's almost seventy, and she's technologically poor, <laughs> with her Kindle and her iPad, her her giant iPad too. It isn't even one of those little ones. It's like she have the medium iPad or the really big iPad Pro. The medium, the medium. Okay, I mean the medium is plenty big. I mean I I looked at the. Big it's a twelve, one. yeah, twelve inch, yeah, and then she has an iPhone, um. And she has, she has, a, she has two Kindle Fires. One she reads on, and one she plays games on. I don't even know what to say. I said, you could do both on the same one. She says, yes. But what if I want to read and play my game at the same time? I'm like, well, you can read on your, your, um, your iPad. I got a look. She says, I read on my Kindle Fire. Kind of like the same time, shortly after she retired, we were sitting in the cafe, and this, and this is when she was using an uh, a laptop, and she was trying to search for something, and she was pissy because she was having to hunt and peck because she can't type. I said, I could get you a program so you can learn to type. This woman turns to me and looks at me and says, I am retired. <laughs> so, <clears throat> whenever you don't want to learn something, you turn to the person who's offering to teach you this, and say, I'm retired. <laughs> Whether you are or not, just, just just go for it. But yeah, she has the middle one, the twelve inch. Although she probably she probably liked that giant one, eleven. Yeah, I don't actually own an iPad. I don't own any Apple products. She also has Apple the Apple AirPods because she called me over to her house and she says I've lost my my um one of my iPod my AirPods. I said just one, and she's like, yeah. Can you come help me find it? And I'm like, you have dark carpet and it's white. She full named me. So I went over and helped her find her iPod, her, her AirPod. It was under her bed. She couldn't have got to it anyway. What are AirTags, Ellie? But, um, <clears throat> magical realism, Jillian. Hello? Did she go away? Did I miss it? Oh, no, I was, I've been sitting here talking to you about Apple products and, the, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm muted while I was trying to tame this Jamba Juice. Yes, I was sucking mango, but I forgot to unmute. Um, Is that too yeah, big to go on an AirPod, though? They, they they would fit on her case, but they wouldn't. The individual the individual earbuds, they'd be too big for. Right, okay, yeah. Because she lost her, her. Yeah, Yeah, they are pretty tiny. 
I don't but, actually um, like those that that shape, that hard plastic shape of the earbud or the the eye, the just just the one that's cabled. It hurts my ear. Um, the air, the new the newer ones, the Pro are better, but they they're not a fit from. It's like the one Apple product that I've never been able to use is their ear, ear, ear the earpods. Um, they just don't. Even when they switch to the silicon tips instead of the hard plastic, it they weren't a fit for my ears. So I stuck with Bose. I mean, for years, so that's what I keep using. But my sister's a diehard Android person, and the one product that she concedes that there's no competition for is the iPad. So it's the her only concession to an Apple product is owning an iPad. Everything else she doesn't. Won't touch I kind of do want one personally, but I think my husband might break up with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my sister she has every tablet you can think of she even got the top of the line um uh, what, uh oh God, i have skull candy um earbuds too they're soft I, I really like them i like my bows um, but, but i mean i can't imagine switching from but i mean once you put a lot of money into headphones i mean you just don't you just don't change on a whim but um anyway so yeah i only give up my bows because they broke so right um but some magical realism um the only thing I have that are not bows at this point is I do have a pair of aftershocks and I only use those for when I'm like out walking by myself at night and stuff. And that's because they're bone conduction rather than in your ear. It's so I can still hear what's going on around me. Yeah. But anyway, um, so magical realism. So any, anyway, when you are researching, um, just be careful about how you go research your magical realism. But so let's go back to the science question about you just have to fit. You don't want to, you don't want to make put your world have your world building put baby in a corner so you just don't want to put anything into your story that would invalidate your universe so um like let's say that there are like let's let's say for instance i'm just gonna throw this out as a wild example um you want to write 911 and you want them to be firefighters and you're going to have to make some accommodation for the different kinds of abilities they're going to have like we talked about earlier like they're going to need to be able to handle magical issues out in the field not just accidents and fires and rescues and that kind of thing they're gonna have to handle people who've got their magic out of control or whatever unless you have a different department that does that that called out to magical issue you figure that out that's not my job but what you don't want to do is invalidate your characters even existing if you want them to exist in their canon circumstances how would you do that let's say you had fire elementals were common and people could put out a fire with a thought if 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 um, telekinesis was super simple and it was really easy to levitate people out of a rescue, you would have very stripped down fire departments if you never needed people to have those kind of skills. If if almost anybody could just you know move a wrecked car with the force of their mind, and a fire could be put out by a fire elemental just by thinking about it. So if you overpower people too much with the magic realism, you would have to have it be very um, rare to have an ability like that. Otherwise, why would you need to have firefighters? Now, granted, only about 20% of a firefighter's job is um, putting out fires. But if you if, fire, if elementals were common, um, that 20% of their job would go away. Why would they be called firefighters? So you just need to think through the ramifications of a decision like putting having fire elementals be really common in your world building. And that's kind of a a wild example, but I wanted to give an example of like what could invalidate your world your 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 characters existing in their canon circumstances in your world building so like if you want a buck to be a fire elemental you could do that but you would have to have it be a super rare ability 
if you wanted him to, and maybe they're really heavily sought in fire departments or something. And they would, and he would have to have, you have to put some serious limits on his abilities. Yeah. Like if he actually were to, cause otherwise the thing is, let's say, let's say he has the ability to put out fire with a thought. It would have to, people would then blame him every time he didn't put out a fire and save people immediately. So it has some deep repercussions. Um, it has, it has deep, deep repercussions when you give a character an ability like that. Um, but also, if you create a world where there are fire elementals who can put out fires, you have fire elementals who can create fires that no one can put out. Right. So you, you got to think about the ripples when you do something like that. Um, and so the same thing could happen in, um, you know, when people talk about science-based fandoms, the, the the mention was of like a law enforcement fandom specifically, like a law enforcement procedural. Um, you'd have similar issues there. Like you, if you don't want to invalidate what your um, what your people do, what your characters do for a living, assuming you want them to be in their similar canon circumstances, you don't want to make it such that you um, obviate law enforcement. Like if everything is solved by clairvoyance, why would you have law enforcement? Right. If clairvoyance are super common and you can just remote view a crime by thinking about it, what would law, what would the function of law enforcement be? Fugitive recovery. Yeah, that could be it. But I mean, that's a very different, that's a very different pe- different group of people who are drawn to fugitive recovery than like, if you're, let's say you're writing a CSI type thing when these are like criminalists, that's a, those kind of people aren't going to be doing fugitive recovery. So, so it'd be fugitive recovery and traffic. <laughs> Right. So your characters then, you're now writing an AU where your characters, the clairvoyance trying to view the crimes rather than the criminalists trying to process the evidence. So it's something you have to think about when you make those decisions because you can't have it both ways. So that's why, you know, little magics are probably easier to deal with than everybody having really big magics. That it's not even about invalidating the science. It's about invalidating your character's existence in that job and zero out and like zero out your plot i mean because you won't have anything left right this this is why you don't want to create a mary sue because they can solve all your problems and then what do you got left unless you put your characters in a different set of circumstances like let's say you want to write csi new york which to me for the most part was the most appealing of the csi bunches of characters as as a whole um let's say you want to watch csi new york but you've made it so that clairvoyants are very common, okay? You wouldn't have criminalists, but they could all be um, a clairvoyant unit that goes out to crime scenes, and instead of processing for evidence, they're getting visions of what happens. And you have to work up what the procedures for that would be. How does that work? Which is what I did with, you know, I, and this is a bit of a fic tease because this fic is not available, but for those of you who, who read The Descendant when I posted it, which was for the Urban Fantasy Challenge, is um, I had all these procedures for how the di- murder investigations are handled because um, there has to be someone who comes out to commune with the dead because there are mediums who are part of every murder investigation. So I had my favorite work- my favorite part of that was the fact that Gibbs couldn't work murders. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not a f- total favorite part, but I really enjoyed that part because he's such a dick, right? Mm-hmm. Ghosts don't want you around, Gibbs. They don't want you around their body. <laughs> You're not you go sit over there in the corner. You're not comforting to the dead. So, um, so whenever there was a murder scene, Tony was usually 
the agent in charge because Gibbs wasn't certified to work murder scenes. So um, that amused the shit out of me. There are lots of great parts in that fic, but that was like that. That was a standout for me. I was like, yeah, uh, Gibbs. Um, <laughs> So there had to be, so I had to, I worked up what like all, you know, I had to do a lot of like, how would this impact law enforcement? What would it look like? How, what would the procedures be? So you could do something like that if like all your criminalists in CSI New York were, um, were clairvoyants instead of criminalists, what do their procedures look like? What is it, what is involved when they go out to a scene? How vulnerable are they when they're doing visions? Um, are all of the people in the cast clairvoyants or are some of them, like the partners or the handler of the clairvoyance, you know, because I would imagine if you're out there doing visions, you're pretty vulnerable. Um, and how are they getting these visions? Do they have to be in the room? Do they have to be touching something? Do they have to be touch the body? Yeah. Are they, is it psychometry? Is it remote viewing? What is going on? So you have to work up your world building. And if you've worked up world building that puts your characters out of a job, well then put your characters into the job that works with your world building or change your world building. So you, you're not so much invalidating the science as it is, in a way, you're kind of and doing an end run around it. Um, but then you have to, you know, think about, well, what do the courts say about how, um, about clairvoyant testimony? Do you have to have multiple clairvoyants having the same vision? Do the clairvoyants have to be certified with the city and the state? Do they have to be licensed to be officially work, you know, police investigations um at what level of investigation do you get a clairvoyant involved you know does it have to be a certain level of felony you know do they do you have to rely on good old-fashioned police work for your average misdemeanor so these are all things to consider when you're working with some kinds of magical realism um because some kinds of magical realism could eliminate some branches of science um and some magical realism could enhance um, so you just have to figure out what that interplay is. Um, it's I, I think if it's more of a, um, I, I, I like doing that kind of world building personally, as opposed to um, just avoiding it. But if you find it kind of in, in, intimidating to do that, like the first time out, rattle out of the box, scale it back. Don't do something huge. Like what I just said, clairvoyance working crime scenes. Um, you could have people have little magics, like, you know, that they're able to, you know, boy, I'm having a blank on little magics here. Um, boy, it is sometimes it's like you just, I could, you know, earlier I could have given you a whole litany of little magics and it's like my brain just, I think it got sucked out when I was trying to get that mango up the straw. Um, like, oh yeah, they could always find their keys or maybe they have like that Gibbs gut thing where they know when something bad's about to happen or, um, um, Maybe they can always, um, they always know exactly when to leave the house to get the best traffic or, you know, it could just, they never get lost. People could have little magics and then you have a few people who have slightly bigger magics or maybe some people are actually magical practitioners. I mean, you just have to kind of find ways to parking space mages. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to kind of, um, if you have a lot of people with like little talents and it could be interesting, people could, it could be like a thing. Some people tell what their little talents are and some people really keep it to themselves. And it could be like with some of those things, like you don't ask, it, it could be like a taboo and it could be one of those things that gets revealed throughout your stories that people's talents are. Um, but that would allow you to keep your characters pretty much similar. Um, but you'd have to do something with it in terms of your plot. Um, 
But if you want to do something, you definitely can do something big. You just have to think about the ramifications of those big talents, those big skills on the world. Like if, if turning time was something a lot of people could do and people knew about it, like Kira, Kira has it, it would be chaos. Kira has it be it's secret. And like only, only like, as far as we know, there's probably other people who can do it, but they don't talk about it. So as far as we know, it's only Buck and only, only Buck and Eddie know. So there's it, that kind of thing. People keep, they keep secret. Um, and also a good way to keep your characters in the same place is what I've done in Requiem is make magical gifts rare, known but rare. Um, and some of them are just really benign. But people have other talents. It's not all just magical gifts. Right. Um, so, and that's what we were talking about your, where you were gone was about that if you don't want to embrace the ripples of doing like um, big magics and what that would look like if like all of your criminals were clairvoyance instead, um, you could just have everybody have little talents and figure out how that ripples into your world and what those little talents, how they affect your plot. Like it could be like, you know, you could have everybody keep several people like Buck could be keeping his, whatever his little talent is to himself. Like maybe he can talk to animals and he keeps that to himself. And it becomes a critical point in your plot when he it gets revealed that he can speak to animals. He's a beast speaker or something like that. Um, it's not earth shattering if he can talk to animals, but it's it's not the kind of thing that would invalidate him as a firefighter, you know. But it would be interesting because it just kind of struck me like, what if he could talk to animals? What if he could hear animals? What if animals knew they could come to him, and how would that have impacted him being on the pier that day for the tsunami? Because we all know that animals have instinctual responses to natural disasters. Um, and we've seen footage of animals running from oceans and bodies of water before tsunamis actually hit. Because they feel it coming. Like, how would that impact that? What would it do? And also, how much trauma would he suffer during that event? Because one of the things that isn't discussed often in tsunamis beyond the human death toll is the amount of sea life that die as a result of a tsunami. Um, right. Is he only hearing mammals? Is he, you know, can he... Do you ever watch Death in Paradise? I don't think so, but sometimes I watch stuff. It's British. Fantastic show. Um, oh... They broke my heart. They broke my heart when they killed my fussy detective. I, I can't even stand it. Anyways, um, British people, man, you can't trust them with characters. They they will kill a character. They don't give a fuck. Anyways, no no hesitation, no remorse. Death in Paradise. Okay, so basically, it's a tropical island, um, and uh, they keep track. They they keep trapping British detectives <laughs> on the island to work in law enforcement. And they all live in this little shack on the beach. This one shack that they not, not, not together. It's like one at a time. Um, and uh, there's this lizard that lives in the shack, and they all have to take care of it. It's like he's like the he's like the pet. And the most recent one tried to get rid of the lizard, and everybody was like, "You did what? <laughs> you did what?" And so he had to go out into the wilderness, <laughs> into the jungle, and find this lizard. And the lizard was waiting on a tree for him to come pick him back up. <laughs> but I was like, what if Buck has something like that in his apartment? What if he like he inherited somebody's lizard? Just a little tiny lizard who talks shit about all the neighbors. <laughs> I don't mind. I like this idea. <clears throat> um, 
I ugly cried, Sybil. I ugly cried. No joke. I was not prepared for that. And we should have been prepared. We should have been prepared because that's how they introduced him, right? He was investigating his own predecessor's d murder. Well, and it's a British show. That's what they do is they kill everybody. It's like yeah. they take the kill. They take all the kill all your darlings thing a little too seriously. It's a great show, though. Even though they broke my heart, it's a great show. I'll have to check it out. I've 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 opened up the Wikipedia page in it because I don't think, you know, some, I'm, I think I watched it on BritBox, but it might have been sister, Acorn. My sister watches a lot of British stuff, and sometimes I catch an episode of stuff here and there. But um, it's anyway. basically a uh, episodic murder series. Like the last the last thing I got deeply invested in was I started watching MI Five with her, and oh. it's like everybody I liked just kept dying. I was like what the fuck is this shit? She goes, oh, this well, it's a British show. And I'm like, I know, I can tell that. She's like, well, this is what they do. I'm I mean, the fan. only person you can trust, you can really invest in on MI5 is Harry. Maybe Ruth. Oh, don't show his picture. He walked around in that little wool suit on the tropical island the whole time he was there, and then they killed him. All he wanted to do was go home and have some tea. I know, Tiffany, I cried. When he sat down beside her, when Richard sat down beside her on the beach, I was like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> I can't handle it. <laughs> Started crying. Oh yeah. oh yeah, MI5 is definitely an equal opportunity to kill off. I think there are only like two characters who make it all the way to the end. And even that's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. I blocked I out do, a lot of it because it really hurt my feelings. I do think it's two. I mean, there's a fine line between realistic and what they do on British time shows. On crime shows. Or just British shows in general. I kind of want to watch the Lucy Lawless show on Acorn. But I'm afraid of it. I'm pretty sure they're going to kill her. Because <laughs> it's British. That's what they do. Rob Lowe had a uh, British TV show. For a while. Before he did 911 Lone Star. Is that, like a, is, is, that, is that the right name? Rob Lowe? I, I get their brothers confused. Okay. I didn't realize he was on a British show because I thought that before he did um, Lone Star, um, he, he plays. Yeah, he plays. Um, he did. It was. It was, it was a, a limited series. He plays an American um, cop who goes to Britain. Um, I've not actually watched it, but uh, I did uh, put it on my watch list. I'll have to check it out. So, going to bed. Night, Hale. Um, so, when it comes to um, doing fusing your magical realism, and it, I I don't think there's any inherent reason why magical realism should come off cracky, um, unless you are putting it with a show that is inherently cracky, and then that's not a function of the magical realism. Um, I think crack is what you make it. Yeah, crack isn't my go-to response in any fandom. Um, I mean, even when I think I, I have two fix that are overtly cracky. I mean, even when I intend to write crack, it's not as cracky as when somebody else. The only fic that I can think of that is diehard crack, crack, crack is the one where because I intended adaptable to be pretty to be kind of cracky, but it didn't come out as cracky as I even thought it would. Um, but the Deadpool story, even yeah. though the tree, even though the tree moves into the backyard, <laughs> even even with the tree moving into the backyard, even with the willow that has a crush <laughs> on Noah and hugs him, that that Claudia calls a shameless hussy, it didn't come off as cracky in the execution as it should be conceptually. The one that is diehard crack is the one where Deadpool sends Tony fingers. Well, yeah. 
I mean, that I intended it to be cracky. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Crack, crack, crack. Um, so someone had asked me earlier. Uh, well, Monsters sorry, Inc. was uh, my intentional crack, and Darkly Lowell is my crack taken seriously. <laughs> yeah, crack. I mean, even when I usually when I write crack taken seriously, it's it's less cracky than I think it it. it it's more like it sounds like crack when I describe it to somebody, but when in the writing, um, uh, what's it called? Feeding Frenzy in concept was cracky, but it was not supposed to be cracky in the execution, which it wasn't. But in concept, the idea of this ridiculous feeding frenzy around t- hiring Tony was it's cracky. So, but it's a response to fandom saying that he's so desirable as an employee that everybody would want him. Like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. Um, so um, it even got a little meta in some spots, but um, but for the most part, it's just it's definitely not my go-to. The the, the only thing that was really intended intended to crack crack was the Deadpool thing, um, and that was a little bit to get me out of a a writing slump. I by the way, I suggested that Kira use like a plumber's butt crack for art for this start for this podcast i looked for one but i couldn't find one that fortunately she doesn't listen worked. to me <laughs> y'all are welcome <laughs> i did look but i was like no nah, that doesn't really work but i don't even the pink one even the harry potter pink one the story called pink um it's cracky in concept i'm not so certain that it's cracky in the execution i mean yes harry turned tony pink which sounds ridiculous but I I don't think the 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 execution on that is all that cracky, because Tony's Tony's basically a muggle and he is raising Harry. And it's a short story because I would not know that I could execute this in a long form in that story. And he Harry wanted a pink bunny and Tony had a brain fart, got him a blue bunny, and Harry had accidental magic and turned Tony pink and started crying. It's have something pink. <laughs> Fornell, Fornell, and Fornell, um, he has to call Fornell to come and reverse Harry's accidental magic. So it sounds crackier than it reads, I think. Um, fun, just because something is funny doesn't mean it's cracky. I have to, I'm going to have to, that's, that, I'm going to have to put that line out there. Because I have a lot of things that I think are amusing, and people tell me they laugh at, and I don't think that they're crack. But anyway, maybe crack is in the eye but- of the beholder. But sometimes you can take a crack element that in any other context would be ridiculous and extremely cracky and it not be cracky in execution. Like, honestly, honestly, a pet penguin is pure crack and also illegal. But, um, well, it sounds, it sounds absurd until you understand the context. Right. But I would not say Avery or the execution of Avery in Sebastian's life is in any single way cracky. No. Now, there is a ridiculous scene that I put into um, my story Imperfect, which is a Sentinel guide fusion, where um, Tony's guide ability causes a, bank, a, a convenience store robbery to go very awry, and it winds up on YouTube. Um, because that, just because that scene is absurd, and it reads a little cracky, it's still intended to be absurd, it does not mean that the story is crack. Yes, Agnes sometimes, and Hurricane. Sometimes adding a little bit of humor to situations is the best way to kind of... Um, yeah, it gives you a mental break and it gives your, your reader a mental break. 
Um, we had to break the tension in that story, you know, hardcore, because that was probably one of the more, it's probably one of the angstier stories I've ever written, which you wouldn't think it on the surface, but in the, in the, when I, in the story, I knew I was going to need some emotional reprieve. That's yes. the one where Gibbs rejects Tony, right? Yes. The then one, changes his mind like a dick? Well, he doesn't, he, 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 he sort of changed his mind in the sense that he rejected him because he didn't want to bond with anybody who wasn't Shannon. But the reality of not having Tony with him made him change his mind. But by then, Tony had already moved on. So, um, so he didn't really change his mind about wanting a bond. He just changed his mind about not wanting, wanting Tony, Tony around. So he didn't really want a guide and he would have fought the bond. So he changed his mind, but not really. Because he flat out right. told Tony that he couldn't imagine having anything with Tony that he wasn't allowed. And he would have resented anything he had with Tony that he wasn't allowed to have with Shannon. So, um, Which is ugly-ass behavior. To have that opinion and then to say, okay, but we can still bond. I'm going to resent the fuck out of you for the rest of my life, but we can go ahead and do this. because I, I, I need you on the job. But the minute Tony was around him in person, he knew Gibbs was sliding into dormancy. And... Um, and that's ultimately what happens to Gibbs. It's probably one of the harsher things that I've ever done to Gibbs in a story is make him, a, if I, where I made him a sentinel and then made him dormant by the end of it. But um, depending on the world building, dormancy isn't a bad thing. It just depends on how you write it. Like in um, Ascendant, Gibbs was dormant out of grief, but it wasn't like he wasn't considered corrupted. Yeah. Well, I usually, my headcanon is that dormancy can be either caused by corruption or by physical injury or some sort of emotional injury. A lot of things can cause dormancy, but that in a seemingly healthy, otherwise untroubled sentinel that goes dormant, they look to corruption. They would have to, right? Right. Because he is he somehow, he has somehow, you know, he has messed up this sentinel's imperative. And what is he doing? So, but normally they would um, immediately see what's causing the dormancy, you know, injury, grief, whatever. Um, but anyway, so he, Gibbs dormancy is a, Gibbs should have been dormant in that story long before he became dormant. And he was holding off dormancy by Tony's presence on his team. So Tony was a crutch keeping him a sentinel. And that ultimately became, it became painful for him not to have Tony around. And so that's why he wanted Tony back. And that's he thought, so gross. He, but he thought it was about Tony that he wanted to he wanted to bond with Tony, but he was just he was so lost in his own grief. And, and Tony told him, Tony flat out told him that his grief was very selfish, and that Gibbs wasn't the only person who'd ever suffered in his life. But he acted like he was, and he used his grief like a bludgeon against other people. Um, but anyway, I used the humor in that story to kind of break the tension, um, and give a moment between when things are starting because I needed Tony to kind of come back into his own as opposed to kind of on this kind of slide of angsty crap happening. Yeah, Ed, um, Ducky did think that Gibbs should go after, go back and get Tony, you know, go fix this. Um, but Ducky wasn't really understanding the situation. I mean, nobody understood the situation until it was all over and done with. Um, so, but in that case, the humor was not there for the purposes of crack. It was there to kind of be a bridge um, and to give the reader a breath before we moved on. That whole thing about humor being crack and people seeing it as crack automatically remind, kind of reminds me of that issue where if you write a character as a bad guy, it's automatically bashing. 
yeah, it's it's this weird black and white way of looking at things, and it's just not that simplistic. Like, I'll be the first one to admit I will bash the fuck out of a character I don't like. Um, but sometimes writing a character as a bad guy is not bashing. And I think the line for me is if I give a character realistic background for their actions and their behaviors, um, then I'm just writing them as a villain. But if I just make them an evil asshole for my because I hate them, I'm bashing them. And sometimes even when you warn for bashing, like Molly, I don't always agree that I think you bashed her. But, you know, I mean, I think I think it's always better. Sometimes I will warn for perceived character bashing just so that the people who like a character can gird their loins before they wade in. Um, yeah, nine but- times out of ten, I... I, I- I'm not going to treat Molly Weasley well because I can't stand her ass. I had a real problem. My problem with Molly Weasley began when her sons broke Harry Potter at a privet drive and brought him to their house and told her they had to break him out and there were bars in his window. um, And he'd obviously not been fed well. And she didn't do a damn thing about it. I would tell anybody to their face, they're a fucking idiot if they think Molly Weasley is a good mother. She can't even tell her own children apart. And tends to forget the twins even exist sometimes. But that I, I won't get off that box. Sorry. <laughs> it's an easy it's an easy soapbox to climb on. You know, I mean I have very strong feelings about Ziva like this. And but the thing is I do think there's a difference between bashing a character and exploring the logical ramifications of their actions in canon. Um like Jennifer Keller does some objectively awful things in canon. Yeah. She ignores the fact that Rodney is ill because she likes him better that way. Which is just so disgusting. She recognized a shift, a fundamental shift in his personality that she liked, and she decided to ignore it until it became a problem. Because she liked him better. And she admits this. What the actual fuck? Jillian. <laughs> yeah. What the actual fuck is the only way to praise that. And when she tells Jeannie this, Jeannie doesn't even blink. Because she confesses this to Jeannie. And Jeannie doesn't even blink. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that's reasonable. Bitch, what? But Jeannie, in canon, clearly does not like her own brother. Which, you know, I get. I don't like any of my siblings either. Um, That's beside the point. Yeah. Rodney's my favorite, and that makes her an asshole. But exploring the canon consequences of a character's actions is not the same thing as bashing them. But I, sometimes it's hard to know where that line is, even for somebody who's... Like, now, if I made Ziva a serial killer, I probably would write that I was bashing her. But exploring her espionage... And Except, ha- I mean, she brags about killing people. No. <laughs> but I mean, like... I don't. I mean, outside of the context of her as an assassin, which you know, whatever. If but if she seriously, if she was doing like a Dexter thing, except not killing people who deserve it, if she's like, like let's say she's on the weekends killing people who look like Tony, right? Oh I God, would, you should write that. <laughs> that would be like a, to me a form of character bashing because there's just no foundation for that really, um, and. Which is, I'm fine with doing that. I would just tag for it. But exploring the consequences of her um, espionage is not character bashing because she committed espionage. Just because Cannon chose to wipe it away. If (laughs) she starts killing people who look like Tony after he killed her man, 
you know, when she was a hostage and she came back and she was, you know, crazy cakes and shit. Um, then you have context because she can't actually kill Tony because Gibbs wouldn't forgive her for it. So she goes out and kills people who look like Tony. And actually, the funny thing is when you break down the, you know, the over six feet tall, the kind of dark blonde hair and the green eyes and like the age, there's actually be a very tiny number of people in that metropolitan area that fit all of those demographics. So, but she could find them all. It'd probably be like, you know, because especially when you figure over six feet tall with green eyes, that makes those green eyes aren't aren't particularly common, right? They're very rare. It's like 2% of the population or something like that. Less than 2%, less than two and a half percent, I think, or something like that, if I remember correctly. So it's very small. Because I'm special. Right. So it's a very (laughs) small percent of the population. And then over six feet tall also, um, even though we tend to see a lot of actors who are over six feet tall, over six feet tall, and then every inch you go above over six feet tall is... Um, uh, another degree of um, how uh, it being uncommon. I think it's again, it's like some really small percentage of the population. It's like two percent or something like that. So she's only killing men over thirty with that are over six feet tall with green, with dark blonde or light brown hair, um, with green eyes. It, it, there's probably like a dozen of them in the metropolitan DC area. It would quickly become a very recognizable pattern. Very. And eventually she would spiral because she'd run out of targets. But, you know, you could write, so that could be, you know, you could write her becoming, but it does writing Ziva becoming that twisted? Is that bashing or not? I mean, it, it, at bashing is the eye of the holder. I probably would write it as, I probably at least tag for character assassination, maybe. I don't know. I would warn people that I, mean, I was. Like, I would say that she, you could create legitimate circumstances for her characterization. Um, but I would probably still label it bashing just to avoid getting bitched out about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I would do because I was, but if, but if I was just exploring her having consequences for her espionage, I would not label it. Now, in Desiderata, when I had her launch an RPG into Tony's apartment, I'm pretty sure I did label that word for character bashing on that one. You know, because reasons. (laughs) That's one Um, reference to air missile (laughs) away from being made right. (laughs) So, because I mean, I felt like that was a little. Um, but the funny thing is, I think I don't think this is in the part uh, in the parts that I posted. But Blair and Tony talk about how surreal that is, and um, that the only re- and Blair points out to him that the only reason that's surreal to Tony is because Tony's stuck in an ethnocentric mindset because he's on American soil, and that's not what happens here. But that if he were in the Middle East, he wouldn't be thinking that that was all that weird. It's like yeah, that happens. <laughs> My God, that's horrible. <coughs> so. Um, he said, you know, you're thinking about, you're thinking of RPGs as something that ha- are used elsewhere and are used by the military, but in other countries, their reality is different. So, you know. It was just a weapon of choice for her. Right. It, it, it was, wasn't out of ordinary at all. For her, it wasn't, it was convenient and it was a weapon that wasn't unusual. Um, it's just to Tony, it seems so bizarre because people don't fire RPGs at people's apartments um, in the United States. In America. Right. Because <laughs> that's what Tony says. He's, people don't fire RPGs into people's apartment. And and Blair goes, well, in the United States, that's true. <laughs> you just, you just, I just had the worst thing pop into my brain. It's all your fault. What? Because, because I said in America and immediately I thought there are no cats in America. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even put you in the corner. I mean, I can, but it doesn't do anything. I just earworm myself. <sighs> My sister must have watched that movie twice twice a week for a whole damn year. 
But yeah, all the times I when, whenever I even when I don't think I'm actually bashing a character. Yeah, that's right, desert. The streets were paved with cheese. Um, I uh will label it bashing just to avoid getting an email accusing me of not labeling my fic appropriately for bashing. Because some people don't like to read character bashing, and I get that. Um, so better just to warn, you know, so they don't get their little fifis hurt. Was that condescending? No. Maybe. Well, I mean, the thing is, when it comes to, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. When it comes to warnings, I do try to take warnings very seriously. But there's some things I warn that I warn for only because I don't want people to get bent. Because for me, warnings are usually about things like incest and rape and that kind of thing. Character bashing. Right? On the other hand, I wouldn't want to go into a Tony Denoso bashing fix. So I appreciate the warning. Right. I would not want to read Rodney bashing or John bashing or Buck bashing. Eddie bashing. I mean, I have, I have, I don't want. No. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I could, again, I wouldn't want to read bashing about characters. But like. if I got recommended a Rodney bashing fic, I would like pop off. <laughs> no. So, you know, I, I mean, I, dare you. I use it because, I mean, if somebody really, um, if somebody really likes the characters Eve, although if somebody really likes the characters Eve, I don't know why they're reading my writing, but I still, you know, I'm going to fair, I'm going to give fair warning. You know, Twy, I read a story like that where John was a trust agent and he's confessed. Because well, was it you who wrecked it, wrecked it to me? More or less. Yeah. Okay. He was confessing to being a trust agent um, and Jack O'Neill makes him swallow the whole thing whole and never talk about it again and sends him back to Atlantis. And Rodney confesses to John that he's also a trust agent. <laughs> it was very, I thought that was very impactful. Um, in, in that in that particular one, um, what I liked about it was that you know John basically was blackmailed into it and went along with it until they pushed him to a point where they wanted him to do something that he was fundamentally incapable of doing, and he's like, "Oh hell no, I'm going to burn my whole life to the ground first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th this would be the exact opposite concept. Concept why it, this was um, when he was pushed to hurt. Actually, that exact that exact scenario when he was pushed to hurt Rodney is when he was like, "Nope, that's it. We've hit my limit. Sorry, I'm gonna go and put myself in prison." Reminds me, I stumbled across a fic once that was in Harry Potter, where um, Sirius Black was actually a fucking Death Eater, and I, I was so, I felt personally victimized by this fic. I just. And he basically took the place of, um, he was like a mixture of Barty Crouch Jr. and Pettigrew in oh, canon. Gosh. And I, I, I kept staring at it and staring at it and staring at it. And finally I was like, oh God, I can't, I can't. And I had to turn it off. I was personally victimized by the Harry Potter fandom and I am not alone. <laughs> <coughs> oh God, Hermione joining the Death Eaters. I mean, how does that even fucking happen? There's also a trope in Harry Potter where she's actually a pureblood. Um, and she's a plant for Dumbledore. That's a big trope in Harry Potter fandom as well. Hermione. Um, I wouldn't read Hermione or Harry with any of the marauders on a bet. <laughs> I basically if if this if this character is an adult when these children are being sorted, I'm not here for it. No, I mean the thing is, people can people write write what you want, but there's just some things I'm just 
there's some tropes I'm just not gonna. You just whole, don't expect me to read it. It's like people, <coughs> people have gone some interesting directions with Harry's dark. In I mean, I don't actually don't mind dark Harry, but it all depends upon what you do with it. I don't even consider Harry going dark to necessarily be bashing. But or even on, unjustified. Right, but it just depends upon what you do with it. I have this whole little little humorous subplot in the line the Raven and the Lion, where Harry and Hermione have decided that basically the fucking magical world is so gullible that they could take it over. And they're in their first year. And it's like it's not Harry Harry's like particularly serious, but Hermione does have a plan just in case he decides he wants to do it. And she's already making a list of people who could be in their inner circle. <laughs> <laughs> Provided they do really well on their owls. Because <laughs> Harry doesn't want dumb followers. <laughs> well, I think that's a reasonable standard. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. Um, so, yeah, it, it amuses me. I mean, I did write Harry being Severus and Lucius' kid, but that was a completely. That was another one of my weird ideas. We all have one occasionally. I seem to have them on the regular. Well, I wasn't going to say that. But they often come out better in execution than sometimes they sound. <laughs> I remember the like Claudia's time I... a tree. Yeah, well, that, that's really that's for the Claire. But remember the first time I told you about restoration when I was mentioning the idea to you? I think you kind of froze. It was like, I felt like your brain just kind of like reset it was like i can almost feel like a blue screen happening like i don't even know what to say i i, I might have porn tilted at the screen i can't be certain it's been a while <coughs> i'm not i i am actually coming into rough trade for the first time kind of nervous really why well i've replotted um i think we're done with the podcast you want to in the podcast and we'll talk about this yeah um because it doesn't really apply to the topic <coughs> yeah, anybody have any questions about magical realism while we're waiting for questions i would say that i don't think that it, it to, to answer the question that led to the podcast to sum up i don't think there's anything about magical realism that is inherently cracky you do have the potential to have complications between magic and science or magic and procedure in whatever canon especially contemporary fandoms um you just have to work that carefully and think through your ripples because they will be there, especially the bigger the magic that you allow, the more ripples there's going to be on science. And, and you just got to think it through. So I don't think there's an any kind of inherent conflict. I have no advice about writing magic realism in a, in an actual cracky fandom. Like um, I, my go-to on cracky examples is the office, but I know there are other um, examples. Um, uh, Parks and Recreation. Parks and I've Rec, never watched yeah. either. Because, but the thing so. is, is I don't think the magical realism would change the tone of the fan fiction any more than it is already. You know, I don't know why it would because it's already crack. So I don't think the magical. I think if you're going to write magical realism in those circumstances, that it would be funny to have your characters completely ignore it, like not even acknowledge that it's happening. <laughs> like just have one of the characters just pop across the room, you know. Flit across their own little wings or whatever, and just like not even it, not even be a thing that they acknowledge. It just it just it happens in the background, and they keep talking. Right, and that's one of the traits of magical realism is that you know if a character you know lights a cigarette with their, um, you know with their finger instead of with a lighter, that would be a commonplace in magical realism. It wouldn't be particularly noteworthy. 
And if they had wings, if wings were a common feature, you would just mention that, you know, wings. Yeah, your wings look a little ragged today. <laughs> Are you okay? Do you need to be <coughs> So I don't think we have any, although one person's typing, but I don't know that we have any questions. One thing I would say earlier, talking about demons and um, first responders and rescues and touching. I think that in a situation, in a world like that, there would be policies that have already been developed and have been, you know, for a long time but also considering the magical elements of his dark materials it could be that there are trained first responders who have equipment to deal with the handling of um demons including like maybe gloves that are designed magically to be null so that when they're having to pick up a, a demon they're not interacting with that person's soul yeah, they could. Their turnout. So gear, it creates this kind of null, right? Their turnouts could be, especially the turnouts for certain people, could be specially um, designed. Then they could be really expensive for the people who are allowed to handle demons, so that they can handle demons if they need to. But it could also be used. You need to decide like what happens if someone accidentally touches somebody's demon, because it's going to happen in emergency situations. It's just going to eventually, even if you don't do it on. Your Honestly, screen. in really crowded cities, how can it not happen? Right. It, 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 I would say, if I was going to write his dark materials, like, in a modern AU, because it is historical, right? Basically historical steampunk. Um, alternate universe kind of thing. If you're going to put them in an urban environment, I would have demons be only solid to their person. And maybe to their person's persons. Like, to their partners and their partner's children. People who are allowed to touch their demon get a firm touch, but otherwise they somebody else's hand would go straight through them. They would be immaterial. Is that is that is that, is that the right word? Yeah, or yeah, intangible. They wouldn't have a material they wouldn't have a tangible presence outside of specific circumstances. Um and that would be like an evolution of um modern urban society. Um a, a way of protecting demons as humans evolved. Yeah, that word. That that word works, works too. But that would prevent them from being hurt and injured in car accidents. It would prevent them being touched. It would um, prevent them from being um, a problem in mass transit. It would, um, especially if they can appear and disappear, it would allow first responders to enter uh, buildings that are on fire, repel down a building. Um, their size wouldn't be an issue because... If Buck or Eddie has a spirit, uh, has a demon that's over a hundred pounds, they're not working searching. Um, they're not working heavy rescue. If they have to carry their demon too, no, no, it, that would be rough. I mean, and honestly, if if they had to do that kind of thing, their shifts would be really, really fucking short, and they might even be like relegated to a single rescue situation on any one shift and be sent home out of just pure damn exhaustion. Can you imagine having to cart your your demon down the side of a building to rescue another human being and their demon, and then trying to haul all that weight back up? I probably would give myself, in the case of demons, if I were writing a demons universe, I probably would give a little bit more room that demons can be apart from people because I wouldn't actually want um, the demons to have to go down and do heavy rescue, like rope rescue, with the human. I think that's just adding logistical complications that feel like too much work. 
it just for me that's how i would do it i would i would because i think i mean i would do a psionic connection and yeah and and have them move in and out you know i think i think canon canon his art materials gives him a pretty the tether between them is pretty short but i would probably just just hand wave that away and make it longer um i think i had to mix spear animal and demon together yeah or or it could be it's a muscle that can be trained to give them more space and that that's something first responders do is I mean most people never train to be able to be further apart from their demon but that first that's one of the things first responders go through is training to lengthen the distance they can be apart so that you can do you know a hundred foot repel without having to have your demon attached to your back (coughs) anyways just think about the consequences of your choices when you're doing stuff like that and your ripples and make adjustments to the world building that suits the story that you're writing. You don't have to take on board all the rules of any particular fandom circumstance when you're working with things like sentinels or demons or precognition or telekinesis or just whatever. Yeah, just think about what it means, because the, the thing that's inspired this was about invalidating science. I don't think there's necessarily a reason for magical realism to invalidate science, but it does create potential complications for any any contemporary fandom, depending upon the occupation. Um, but even if you're 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 even if you're writing in suits and your characters are lawyers, they're still dealing with legal issues. So there, you, you need to think through the ramifications of this kind of there's thing. this cute little there's this cute little story in 911 where Maddie is mad at Buck because he's at work on his birthday or he's going to work on his birthday and he can't work on his birthday because there's a curse on his, on their family that if you get your blood that if you spill blood on your birthday you'll fall into an enchanted sleep and stay that way until someone makes a magical loving sacrifice for you or, and um and it lasts until your 30th birthday. Well, this is Buck's 30th birthday and he's going to go to work and Maddie's like not having it. And she's like arguing with him in the loft about him working on his birthday. And she explains the curse to everybody and everybody's like, and Hen's like, well, let's just check this. And she plucks a hair off Buck's head and then gets out a kit to check to see if he's cursed. So she's mixing science and magic in that moment. And she's connecting this magical circumstance into the scientific realm that she works in um because part of her job as you see when she's testing for this curse is to deal with the consequences of magical situations as well as other things i it's it's on ao3 jace i don't and eddie ends up breaking the curse for their whole family obviously it's called the curse of the sleeping bucky buckley by corgi queen 14 and a corgi queen 14 is one word um but it's cute fic. But it, there, there's that moment of where magic and science meet. And Hen's like, yeah, yeah, you're cursed. <laughs> you need to take your ass home. <laughs> you can't work tomorrow. <laughs> but that's thinking, through Go home the, now. that's thinking through the issues of what does it mean to have magic and how the world have adapted as science develops. So magic doesn't mm-hmm. have to invalidate science. Um, but you don't have to go there in your thinking, but you do need to think through and the, what it means for these things to come. The vice versa is true too. Yeah. So you just have to think about, and, and if you do something in um, a world like the MCU, which has comic book science um, and comic book magic, <laughs> and comic book magic, yeah, things get possibly a little bit more complicated. But just, just work it out. You'll get there. 
and it'll be fun. I'm really enjoying writing Requiem. Uh, I think that episode that novella two is actually stronger than novella one. Um, I do a lot of foundation work in the, the first part. So, uh, but I really enjoyed writing the, the romance part and the adoption and B's my favorite kid so far. Um, and yes, I did give her green eyes because I have green eyes. Uh, I'm going to own it. <laughs> That's just what happened. Um, and um, I'm really like, I really love little old fashioned names like Beatrice and Matilda. And I, I just, I, I really love them. And I had, I had a whole big list of names to choose from and I chose Beatrice. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased with Requiem and the writing and uh, acknowledging the magical realism in my work <laughs> because apparently I've been doing it for a while and the Sentinel didn't even know it. <coughs> but I do tend to avoid the, the mystic parts of the Sentinel unless I have a specific need for a spirit animal, which happens in Sentinels of Atlantis. You use, um, is it Keaton that you use a little bit more in that? Uh, you use Keaton a little bit more and you explore a little bit psionic wounds. In, in Ascendant. Yeah. In Ascendant, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say generally you don't really delve too much or as much. Um, but I think well, that's what I'd like to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, it certainly is. It's, it's, it's certainly an element that is, um, um, well within your wheelhouse and something that you've done a lot of sentinel work and a lot of sentinel world building and you've, you've done the magical realism element of it. You just, I think you've gravitate more towards just a sentinel guide bond as opposed to working with the spirit animals, but I really enjoy the bond. I love bonding fix. I, I love the idea of, um, I just, I'm a romantic at heart and I love the romance shit. <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff. Good night, Twy. Good night. Okay, so I, nobody had questions, so I think we're done. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and it um, was beneficial to you in some way and that you learned something. And um, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And uh, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>